0: And so now you have this really rich record of everything in the PR that's associated with that PR, mm, and it's yeah. getting closer to proper software engineering practices, mm-hmm. where you have like the test that's like automatically conducted from the PR itself, and you have all the documentation there.
1: You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show where we learn about making machine learning models work in the real world. I'm your host, Lucas Biewald. I love talking to Hamil Hussein because he likes making tools for machine learning practitioners the same way I do. He's currently working at GitHub, but before that, he's built large data science teams at Airbnb, DataRobot, and a whole bunch of other really successful companies. I can't wait to talk to him. So Hamil, thanks so much for taking the time uh, to talk today. You're one of the first guests that we've had that I've actually worked with before. Um, So we have a lot to talk about. And I thought you know the cool thing that um, we worked on, which I'd just love for you to describe is the um, code search net project that you spearheaded. Can you just you know describe for someone who doesn't know what it is, like what it is and you know what the goals are?
0: yeah, um, so GitHub has a large corpus of code, as you might imagine. Um, you know there's all these open source repositories and uh, you know many different languages and uh, in the machine learning community. Uh, you know, natural language processing is a really exciting space, especially with deep learning. And um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a few data sets that people really like um, for that. Um, but one that sort of hasn't been paid attention to much is uh, perhaps, uh, you know, the large corpus of GitHub data. And the and the thing is like that data is, is open, is already open, it's, it's already open source. But it can, the barrier to entry is kind of high, um, especially when you're talking about code to tokenize code or parse code. Um, it's very complicated, especially when you to strip out comments or do something like that. So internally at GitHub, we had a project where we uh, wanted, wanted to explore representation learning of code um, and, and kind of explore the possibilities to see if we could represent, uh, learn a rep- representation of code. Uh, and what exactly,
1: sorry, what do you mean by like a representation of the code? Like some abstract representation? Or how, how do you think about that?
0: Oh, yeah, sorry. I mean it in a very canonical machine learning sense, uh, like a learning and embedding of mm, code. I see. Um, so that aligns with natural language. Uh, that was one of the experiments that, that we wanted to try to then see if we could use that to boost search results. So someone types in a query, uh, you know, a lot of people don't like GitHub search, understandably. And um you know, if you're trying to search for code, you have to, right now, You it's keyword search. So um, you have to have a good idea of what the syntax is or what keywords may be in the code that you're trying to find. But what if, uh, what if you don't know that? Um, what if you're trying to search for some kind of concept in a code?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, is that possible? And so um, we started exploring that to see if, it would be possible, uh, perhaps, to use machine learning to um, to learn some you know an embedding of code to then you know do some kind of semantic search. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the one of the interesting parts about that is uh, you might wonder uh, how how would you go about doing that? How would you go about um, learning some embeddings of code? And so, kind of stealing a lot of ideas from natural language. Uh, processing, um, you know, there, so it's useful natural language processing uh, if you have a parallel corpus of, you know, uh, let's say one language to another language, uh, like a language translation. So, um, so we thought about that and said, that's interesting. I wonder if we can do that with code, since there is a lot of natural language that happens to be inside code and specifically uh, comments of code where people naturally are sort of labeling what code does. And so um, now this is a tough problem because, you know, comments can be everywhere. They're not necessarily in the same place. They're not necessarily at the same level of granularity or um, in the same format. And so what we did is uh, we kind of scoped down the problem to methods and functions in various languages Mm -hmm. and looked at sort of uh, the doc strings or what, what is equivalent to a doc string in Python, mm-hmm. which is uh, some comment that uh, documents what that function is doing. So mm-hmm. we, uh, we constructed a large parallel corpus of all of these things. And uh, we did some experimentation, and um, it was a really exciting project. It kind of, uh, we had to kind of stop in the middle um, for various reasons, as sometimes happens with machine learning projects that. Uh, you know, are ambitious like this. But um, in doing so, we thought we should open source the data and we should uh, kind of present the results we have and give it to the community so they can take it forward from there. So the Code Search Net Challenge is uh, a large corporate, uh, this large parallel corpus of uh, code and natural language. And uh, it's benchmarks of our uh, attempt at. Um doing information retrieval, so given a query of some kind, can you identify the piece of code that goes with that so in this case given a doc string can you find the the code that uh is paired with that originally so the the benchmark is an information retrieval task mm-hmm. um, and so we thought okay, even though we're pausing on this for for a moment, we know that everybody is interested in this uh our, every, not every not everybody but a lot of people may be interested in this. Um, we saw people at uh, various uh, research labs kind of doing uh, exploring similar problems, so we thought, okay you know we should uh, we should get in the mix being github and so that and, and that was like kind of the impetus to release this uh, data set and of course we had a wonderful partnership with weights and biases who who host the uh the I've benchmark. heard of them <laughs> yeah, yeah um. Who holds the the benchmarks uh, the in the leaderboard of uh, you know of the different submissions that people have and, and the improvements to the model? And the thing that I really really like about weights and biases is um, the transparency. So like you know in Kaggle competitions, you only really get to see what uh, is behind the scenes if the author chooses to release the code. But weights and biases, you can get, see all kinds of detail. It's very transparent. Um, and you get very rich logs of what happened during the training process. So that's really helpful, and I think the, it's, it, the whole community can see that, and I think that's uh, that helps drive that forward. And so just to
1: clarify, so the, the challenge is, right, it's to sort of find the code that best matches the doc string?
0: Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of different tasks. So there's one task. So um, matching a doc string to code is sort of a proxy for what, So, like a search query, may not look like a doc string. Probably doesn't. Totally. And so, and so that task is uh, searching, pairing the doc string with the original code is a proxy for search. So Mm -hmm. we also have some search, actual search queries that people have done against Bing. Mm -hmm. Since we're in Microsoft, we could pull that. Uh, And uh, you know we have you know what. We have some ways of finding out like what uh, page they landed on. And if that was in kind of infer, if that was the thing they were looking for. Mm -hmm. And so we have another uh, test set that is actual queries from a search engine. Even that is not perfect because the, you know, the task that we would want is like to simulate is a more scoped search Mm -hmm. of code, not a global search, like on Google or Bing of how to do something. I think that's a solved problem That, that works really well at least for me. So um, so I would say the task isn't perfect, but we sort of did whatever we could in the time we had. And, uh, I think
1: it's awesome that you released the data. But I, it, the idea is, I mean, since we, we worked together, I think I kind of understand it, right? It's like, you know, I search for like some algorithm, maybe like, you know, like, I don't know, like insertion sort. And then I map that to code that actually does insertion sort. So maybe there's some embedding space that's like the sort of, Embedding of insertion sort, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like, if the code doesn't contain the word insertion or sort, you can still find that code because it that does the magic. Yeah, because yeah. it does that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's the idea is to enhance discoverability of code,
1: uh-huh. um,
0: you know, to do various things. So,
1: it's super cool. We'll put a link to um, some materials um, uh, so folks can find that that, that are more interested.
2: Hi. We'd love to take a moment to tell you guys about Weights and Biases. Weights and Biases is a tool that helps you track and visualize every detail of your machine learning models. We help you debug your machine learning models in real time, collaborate easily, and advance the state of the art in machine learning. You can integrate Weights and Biases into your models with just a few lines of code. With hyperparameter sweeps, you can find the best set of hyperparameters for your models automatically. You can also track and compare how many GPU resources your models are using. With one line of code, you can visualize model predictions in form of images, videos, audio, plotly charts, molecular data, segmentation maps, and 3D point clouds. You can save everything you need to reproduce your models days, weeks, or even months after training. Finally, with reports, you can make your models come alive. Reports are like blog posts in which your readers can interact with your model metrics and predictions. Reports serve as a centralized repository of metrics, predictions, hyperparameter stride, and accompanying notes. All of this together gives you a bird's eye view of your machine learning workflow. You can use reports to share your model insights, keep your team on the same page and collaborate effectively remotely. I'll leave a link in the show notes below to help you get started. And now let's get back to the episode.
1: So we actually haven't like talked about this, but I was kind of looking at your background and I was seeing that, you know, you worked at DataRobot and you wrote about um, AutoML. This is another question we get like all the time. Like, what do you sort of think is the state of AutoML? Like, is it something you use in practice would you recommend it to people? Like, what, when is it useful? When is it not useful? What
0: yeah. do you think of the point? I think, I think um, AutoML is, like, really misunderstood a lot of times.
1: Maybe define it first, because we might yeah. be talking about different things.
0: And so, um, I don't know, I think we're talking about the same thing, but I'll define it just for clarity. Um, so I would say auto ML is our tools that help you sort of automate your machine learning pip- pipeline as much as possible. And that can mean various different things. Um, and obviously, that definition has a very large scope. I mean, of course, you can automate some parts of your machine learning pipeline. You can automate, try to automate the whole machine learning pipeline. You know, what part are you automating exactly? Totally. Um, that kind of gets into the weeds. But um, I would say something that, you know, sufficiently automates a lot of it, um, you know, you can kind of bucket that into AutoML. But even that is, I mean, I, I don't know if there's like an official... There's a there's an organization uh, that has a definition. Um, I don't remember at the top of my head, but uh, that's the way I would define it personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you're right. Um, I did work at DataRobot, who is a company that has a piece of software, um, software as a service, and they're one of the first kind of folks to really kind of put AutoML out there. I would say before Data Robot um, tools that you may have seen are we- uh, I think it was called Weka or AutoWeka, Weka, and then maybe um, Rapid Miner was one that was popular. Things that sort of automate the machine learning pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, so so what uh, so kind of to drill in a little bit more, what data robot does is um, you know you feed it a, a prepared set of data. And so you've already done tons of work before getting to this process. Right, right. And um, you have a target variable and all these features. And so what DataRobot does is it tries a lot of feature engineering steps, kind of like almost, um, you know, problem agnostic feature engineering steps. Um, And it tries many different algorithms uh, all from open source and it benchmarks them against each other and it does uh, lots of diagnostics, like an incredible amount of diagnostics on your data. And then uh, kind of gives you a leaderboard of all these different uh, models. Again, they're all open, like from open source. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, like one flavor of, of that. Um, there's other people that do this. So like H2O has product where they have, they, I think they call it auto ML and are, you know self-driving ML or something like that. I don't know what it's exactly. Um, But they do something like this. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when people, the reason why uh, AutoML is misunderstood is people say, people think of it in, in a certain, kind of put it in a box. And they say, you know, this can't replace a data scientist. Or the objection is, you know, why would I, you know, I can beat this thing. I have domain knowledge. Why would I want to use an AutoML system? when you know i can build a model with my and uh, a domain understanding um kind of to fit my the needs better like mm-hmm. what is what is why would someone want to use automl and so that's the common misunderstanding and um and so i wrote about this when i was at airbnb the blog you're referencing and i think the way that it's used most effectively is to really augment a data scientist you might not use any of the models produced from the AutoML system, which kind of sounds ironic, but really the AutoML system gives you a lot of information from the very mm-hmm. beginning. So I think it's really important to have a baseline
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the better your baseline, like the more, the better off you are. And so um, you can use AutoML system to give you a pretty competitive baseline to begin with. Mm -hmm. And the reason like a lot of people use, you know, linear regression or something or some simple model or just the average as, you know, baseline or whatever it might be is, you know, that's easy to do and you you need a baseline to compare what's going on. So that's helpful. And then also you get a lot of diagnostics. You get a lot of things, uh, you know, something that automatically explores your data set and you can read. It's just getting more information uh, about the task at hand. And if you do that, um, you can use that information really effectively to to go and build your own custom model mm-hmm. and kind of start with some some more hypotheses about you know what might work or what might not work or invalidate some hypotheses i mean it's uh, it's not it's not uncommon to hear i hear this all the time you know data scientists will say you know what random forests they don't really work on this model or on this data set or you know whatever neural nets they don't work um, but, you know, what if the AutoML system, like, has much better results than you did, and uses that model? That's really interesting. Like, how, why did that happen? That happens, like, fair amount, a number of times. Like, when I was at Airbnb, which is, you know, has a lot of talented people, um, you know, it was really interesting, like, sometimes the AutoML system would give you some result that was uh, kind of something you didn't expect. And so... Um, I think that it's just really interesting. It's it's a it's a way of using AutoML, um, and it's, I don't really see AutoML replacing data scientists, but I see it's like an incredibly useful tool. I mean, just even in doing lots of exploratory data analysis. I know that sounds trivial or easy, but just to have something that does that really nicely for you and gives you all kinds of statistics and metrics and like all kinds of graphs just for free is just a head start. So I um, that's kind of my spiel on AutoML.
1: It's kind of interesting. Do you do you make a distinction between AutoML and hyperparameter optimization?
0: I think hyperparameter optimization is part of AutoML. Um, like if something is really AutoML, it should also be doing hyperparameter optimization and and that and that's what a lot of these AutoML frameworks do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so yeah, I mean I but I wouldn't say hyperparameter uh, tuning on its own is what I would just call auto ML. I mean, this word auto ML is, like I said, very hard to define. You can probably, sure. uh, but um, it's definitely something that should, is like should be included in there.
1: But what extra stuff does it do? Like try different algorithms, you mean, or what's, what's, what does it do on top of that?
0: Yeah. So a lot of the magic of, let's say, for example, data robot, cause I'm really familiar with, the, with that uh-huh. product um it does a lot of feature engineering um so it's built by people that are grandmasters of Kaggle um they have like you know three or four or actually more uh former grandmasters and then a lot more people like close to that and they've taken like all their experience of you know winning these competitions and sort of like put that put a lot, a lot of recipes in there so things like okay if you're you know if you're using a tree-based model, um, you know here are some feature engineering steps to try. If your if your data contains text, let's try these feature engineering steps. If uh, your data is a you know if your data looks like this, let's try something else. It's like kind of like a lot of these rules built in, but also it's a lot of a lot of different recipes. Um, includes things like model stacking, model ensembling models. Um, uh, you know, it includes hyperparameter tuning, um, and so, and, it, and it's a it's an incredible amount of diagnostics. So you get, um, you know, kind of like feature importance type of stuff in many different ways. You get um, sort of a lot of model explainability stuff, mm-hmm. um, and so all that information is pretty useful, regardless of what model you're going to go with, um, to kind of understand something really fast and so, and so it's yeah it's kind of it,
1: interesting because i feel like a lot of people think of auto ml as like a way to just sort of get the best model um and yeah it's funny i, I sort of tell people that I, I also share your view that it's a good way to do um exploration or at least like hyperparameter search i think is a great way to sort of understand the domain you're in um, But I guess, you know, maybe it's because Google has that AutoML product where you actually don't get a lot of data. I think you just get the best model out of it that um, sometimes I think of AutoML specifically as just a way to find the best um, model. But of course, you know, if you get to see all the different runs and how they did, um, that would be like incredibly useful to to learn about your data set.
0: Yeah, I agree. And um, yeah, some products, I think they actually kind of think maybe they've designed it in such a way where it they think of it as a black box and just give you the best model. I don't really think that's that incredibly useful. Um, Why isn't
1: that useful though? I mean, cause you know, I think a lot of, you know, from like a a business owner's perspective, they might be like, awesome. Like it's a pain in the ass to make models. (laughs) Let me just get it done with
0: this. Well, I would say um, it is still useful. I agree with you, but it's not as useful. I mean, I would say being able to see everything and learn from it is kind of a, a lot of value added and it, uh, you know, you can still build it and not look at it, all that stuff, if you want to. But I, I find it to be useful as a data scientist. I've I've found that it, you know, makes makes me uh like a lot better uh you know, and kind of helps to check some stuff that.
1: When that, you were working at DataRobot, do you think most teams were using DataRobot Robot more for an exploratory use case or for like an
0: optimization purpose? It was pretty mixed. Um, so I worked with a lot of customers there and people were using it to sort of, so a lot of people already had a model in production of some kind and, you know, they just wanted to, and that was a really excellent use case. I mean, they just plug that data into a data robot and see, you know, what's going on. Um, and that was a really popular use case. Another one was, um, okay, you don't know how to get started. You're kind of taking a long time to build a model You're using, you want to use this. And people use that, uh, kind of, a lot of people actually use the product to learn about, help learn about data science, like, Mm -hmm. because it was so transparent, um, you know, they could see, like, all the steps, what you did, you know, and, you know, they would learn about, like, kind of, like, the workflow. Um, But, yeah, I think, you know, there was a mix between sort of taking something you already have, putting it there, and exploring um, I would say people that already had data scientists like experienced ones they found it really useful um, to get new ideas that mm-hmm. like they didn't consider before
1: makes sense All right, so so, so what, are you, what are you working on now it's, uh, what's your day like can I guess I'm just following your Twitter <laughs> I haven't yeah, talked to you in a while it. it seems like you are really into GitHub actions that I don't totally understand but I want to learn
0: <laughs> oh yeah that's a great question i <laughs> yes i am i mean i didn't try to be but it kind of just worked out that way so you're absolutely right You've kind of become the github actions person for data science uh by accident i think so um yeah to answer your question i'm really interested in tools that can help data scientists uh-huh. um and building those um that's why i like talking to you so much because you're also interested in that totally um and so some of the things um so I mean that's what you know kind of what while what I was doing or why I was interested in working at data robot and I did a lot of that at Airbnb um, and then at github I'm doing that also um, and so one of the things um, that I've tried to do is use to find ways kind of in the short term there's some long term things I'm working on um, which you know, we're exploring, but kind of in the short term, like what can I do right now with the products that GitHub already has to uh, make data science easier?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so it's being creative and trying to figure out what I can provide. So like there's a couple of examples of that. One is um, CI-CD, Continuous Integration and Delivery for Machine Learning Workflows. Mm-hmm. Since since So GitHub uh, launch actions, as you alluded to, um, and so, um, you know, when I saw that launch, I realized that there's an opportunity to, to construct a CI/CD sort of plugins that will allow people to have machine learning workflows, um, that kind of are, that have CICD workflows for machine learning. Um, Could and you so, just,
1: um, uh, just cause I think a lot of people might not know, including kind of myself, um, what, what does it get action and. Oh Why that, is it useful for this?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so GitHub Action, on the surface, GitHub Actions look like another uh, CI/CD system, like Travis or or, uh, or Circle CI or something like that. You know, compute that you can run uh, triggered by some GitHub event,
1: and this runs um, on
0: GitHub. Yeah, this runs on GitHub. So, but the 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 way that it's differentiated is in a couple of ways. One is, so you can fire a GitHub action to run uh, on any event, almo- almost any event, like, so an event means opening an issue, commenting on an issue, opening a PR, labeling a PR, just think, of, like, almost anything that you that happens on GitHub, you can trigger actions to run mm-hmm. arbitrary code based on that event. Mm-hmm. And then... The reason why Actions is special is for like two primary reasons. One is all the metadata associated with uh, like the event that triggered the Action is hydrated into the Actions environment. So like if you want to know who commented on that PR or whatever, that's super easy to do because it's available inside the environment. Mm -hmm. Secondly, is let's say that you create a workflow that is super useful. Something like, I'm going to run a machine learning workflow, log uh, my metrics to weights and biases, and then you uh, report the metrics back into the PR mm-hmm. in GitHub. So that that's pretty that's pretty useful. And so if you want to, you can kind of package it up a little bit, and you can say, okay, I have this workflow. It inspects. It uh, it uh, expects this input, like it inspect it ex- expects a, a run ID mm-hmm. and um, as an output, you know, it will, it will comment on the issue with this formatted table or something like that. I'm simplifying it. but really, I mean, there's a real, uh, we can talk about that, but, and then I can just use your workflow. I don't have to know anything about how you did that. Mm-hmm. I can just say, Hey, I, I, this action, this workflow is pretty cool. I just have to feed it a run ID and some like, it, you know, then it will do the same thing on my repo. So I, so I can just reference your kind of packaged workflow, um, from your repo. I don't have to install anything or do anything. And I can, so I can compose, uh, many different workflows together that do very modular things.
1: Sorry, dumb question. So how do I, how would I pass in the run ID? Like, where did, where would, would that happen?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, so with every step in an actions workflow, If you're Uh using a a packaged action um, that, you know, you can, you can, uh, there's inputs. So you can say, so that inputs can come from anywhere. You can hard code a string, or you Mm -hmm. can say that input can come from another step in the workflow. I see. And then so like for specifically for weights and biases, I happen to have, because I love weights and biases so much, I made an action that does this. So what happens is, uh, I actually log the, the SHA, the commit SHA that mm-hmm. ran, that is associated with the machine learning workflow and uh, two weights and biases. Mm-hmm. And then when the, when the model is finished training, it takes that SHA and it pulls it from weights and biases. So that mm-hmm. kind of becomes the input. Okay. And so, so that's one way of doing it. Um, and then another thing I do is like, when I deploy a model,
1: mm-hmm.
0: so weights and biases puts a comment yeah. in my PR a table Mm -hmm. of all the different runs and the run ids from weights and biases
1: Uh
0: and then i just have a chat command i say uh you know backslash deploy run Uh id and then in actions you know i parse that command and i say okay like give me the run id and i pass it into another like action that then takes that run id as an input and then it 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 goes out to weights and biases downloads the model and it pushes it to to my uh, serving infrastructure
1: Oh, well, him! Hey, well, I didn't know you did that. Can we can we give that to other customers?
0: Yeah, I've been, Yeah, I, I really would like to. Um, I'd cool. Yeah, it's super cool. Like, I think um, <laughs> it's something I'm really excited about. Actually, nice.
1: Well, you send me a link. I would love to play with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Sweet. So, basically, your GitHub Actions kind of lets you build developer workflows, and you're using it to do essentially CI/CD for ML.
0: Yeah, so let me kind of paint a more a clear picture. Um, okay, yeah, totally. And so imagine the scenario, like you may see it all the time. So you open a PR, you, change, you want to make a change to a model of some kind. Happens mm-hmm. all the time. And uh, you want a way to be able to see if this model is better than the baseline or whatever you might have in production. Mm-hmm. Now, how do people do that today? Even if you have something really cool like weights and biases, that's still a separate system than GitHub. And you might have to go out to weights and biases and copy and paste the link into the PR say, Hey, I ran this code in in there, Mm -hmm. but that's, that's a, that's kind of prone to error. Mm
1: -hmm. Like that
0: might be a stale run. You might've changed the code since then. You never know. And it's all in different places. You want to go back to the PR, uh, you know, depending, you know, that's like a manual process. It's not, it's not a good practice. Mm -hmm. So um, in machine learning, workflows can take a long time to run. It can take like, you know, a day, a week, whatever it might be, but sometimes you might want to do a full run before you merge some code. Mm -hmm. And so with GitHub Actions, what you can do is you can say in your PR, I'm ready to test a full run of this model. And then you can issue a chat ops command, say run full test. And then your model runs on your infrastructure of your choice, logs to the experiment tracking system of your choice. And then it dumps metadata into the PR in form of comments and other things where you can see all the results of the diagnostics of this model that you want. And then finally you can decide to deploy this model or do anything else using another chat command and then deploy it. And so now you have this really rich record of everything in the PR that's associated with that PR Mm, and it's getting closer to proper software engineering practices where you have like the test, that's like automatically conducted from the PR itself. And you have all the documentation there. Uh, yeah. I've even talked, and, talked to some waste and biases customers. What they do is they have Jupyter notebooks on the side and they copy and paste those Jupyter notebooks into the PRs. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is to avoid all that stuff. So it just yeah, happens yeah, yeah. automatically. So I hope that helps. That's kind of a.
1: No, that was great. You know, that was educational. And I, I think we should, I think we should try to package up what you did and offer it to our customers. I think they would like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, well, you know, we've been talking for like uh, half an hour, so we probably should wrap up with um, some, some final questions that we've been asking everybody and getting really interesting um, answers. So what is uh, one underrated aspect of machine learning that you think people should pay more attention to?
0: I actually think uh, like one of the highest impact areas you can try to work on as a data scientist or a machine learning engineer is to build tools for other, other uh, data scientists. Um, and sometimes the tools, like, don't, they don't have to be sexy. Like, so there's another thing that I built called Fast Pages, which helps people share information and write blogs, which is like sounds really unsexy and it really is very unsexy. But I think, you know, that kind of stuff is very useful. So like thinking of things that you can do to like automate your own workflow and then share that and make actually into tools, I think that's that's very underrated.
1: Nice. Well, from one toolmaker to another, uh, I have a lot of respect for that. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, we'll put a link to, to FastPages. I think it's super cool. Um, all right, next question is, uh, what's the biggest challenge of, of making machine learning actually work in the real world, in your experience?
0: Yeah, I think that there is a, a gap between um, software engineering and machine learning and uh, the kind of different disciplines that need to work together to, a lot of times, pull off a successful deployment of machine learning. And um, I think part of it is organizational and part of it is tooling. Mm-hmm. I don't think tooling can get you all the way there. Um, I think, uh, you know, machine learning is a t- team sport and requires people f- maybe, you know, from design, UX, uh, of course, ML folks, uh, in- infrastructure people, DevOps, all kinds of people to pull something off. And so I think that it can be a challenge to, kind of get those people together in a lot of organizations to, to, to do what you want.
1: Have there been any like particular dysfunctional patterns that you've seen over and over with that or miscommunication? Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I think the main pattern that I continue to see over and over again is, oh, my business, you know, is in trouble. Um, let's sprinkle some data scientists on it. You don't just hire a data scientist to solve a machine learning problem. You need to think about it as a holistic product. Um, And I think that pattern keeps repeating itself over and over again.
1: While you're still seeing that reminds me of my first job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: It may have not changed much, uh, but I don't know. I mean, hopefully the industry is getting a little bit better. All
1: right. So final question is um, if people want to like learn more about what you're working on, get in touch with you, what's the best way for people to find you online?
0: yeah i mean there's a lot of ways you could find me on twitter um i have a website that i didn't haven't updated in a while but you can do that you can just google me there's a lot of stuff (laughs) nice Um, yeah it's uh all
1: right we'll we'll put a bunch of links for people to uh to come use your tools yeah well thanks thanks so much for chatting this is really fun
0: yeah thank you appreciate it cheers